Church Dads Podcast. Join Mark Haas and Curtis Ketty as they discuss faith, family, liturgy, current events, and fatherhood. Be a part of the discussion by emailing churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here are the dads. Hello and welcome to Church Dads. Uh, this is Mark Haas, and on the other line, in the middle of nowhere, United States, just kidding, no, <laughs> in Kansas, it is Curtis Ketty. Merry Christmas, Hello, Curtis. Merry Christmas, Mark. Yes, happy January 7th. This is when we're coming to you on the first Monday of the month, and this one is almost a live show, Curtis. It's almost, almost. a live show. We almost. are recording this just the night before, so... Um, we're coming off fresh of Sunday music and catechesis and faith formation, just yeah. ripe for discussion right now in our own homes, too. That's right. I'm in the catacombs of the Ketty Domestic Church, and i um, very excited. Yes. Yeah, right. it is the night, the night before Christmas, the 13th day. <laughs> the <laughs> night before the 13th day of Christmas. And you are just below... Um, St. Peter's tomb. No, you're just below your children going to bed right now, right? Yeah, so if you're lucky, dear listener, you may get to hear <laughs> the dulcet tones of my children screaming as they are put uh, into their beds, <laughs> as they're folded gently <laughs> into their many blankets. You may hear them um, screaming with the blood-curdling screams of children who hate being told what to do. With the visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. <laughs> Okay, so Merry Christmas. We come to you today with um, sort of a larger topic we'll get into a little bit later is actually baptism as we are approaching this year, especially because it doesn't happen every year, at least on a Sunday, the baptism of the Lord. And so we get sort of a longer Christmas. That's right. Well, normally, like Epiphany... You know, Epiphany is always on January 6th, and the baptism of the Lord always is the Sunday following Epiphany. Oh, okay. And that's, I always and get them confused. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's what signals the end of Christmas. Baptism of the Lord, I think of it as like a hybrid feast. It's like half of it's in ordinary time and half of it's in the Christmas season. But this year, since Epiphany actually, January 6th, actually landed on a Sunday, we get the maximum Christmas season a whole week. So we get to celebrate Christmas for another week. So don't put your Christmas trees away just yet. Yeah, it's actually still have a week. It's part of our own procrastinating because we were like, wow, the first Monday of the month is like late. (laughs) It's like the sixth day of the month or whatever. Seventh day of the month. But it has been a busy season, I think. Yes, it has. It's crazy. uh, How was how was um, how was Christmas? Christmas was intense. Not, yeah, not intense, like in the backyard, but, you know, the intensity level of Christmas was very high. We, we flew from Kansas to California for Christmas, the five of us, oh and I was very, very anxious about that trip, but um, thanks be to God, it went very, very sweet, and my children um, were much better behaved than I was. I was <laughs> way more uptight than they were. They just kind of coasted along. Um, but, you know, something I, I've really feeling it with Christmas this year is just 
you know, how wonderful it is for my children. They love Christmas. And it made me think back to when I was a kid and how much I loved Christmas. <laughs> and, you know, like getting the gifts and being with family and just such a grace-filled time. And I thought, you know, that was a real element of Christmas um, that I learned about as a child. The idea of a free gift coming to me, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us, comes into our brokenness and saves us and the light comes and all that stuff. And I got to experience that on a kid level in receiving these gifts and like just the feasting and the celebration. But this year, I feel like as a parent, I got to celebrate Christmas from the other side in the sense of I empty myself out (laughs) and lay down my life for my sheep and like the sacrificial aspect of Christmas. I get to see, I give of myself. I give the gifts. I empty my wallet to make you rich, you know, and I got to experience that other side of Christmas this year, which I suppose is just as rich and full of blessing. Um, But man, I do feel like I am, I have emptied myself. (laughs) I need a vacation from my vacation, Mark. You're like Paul. He emptied himself. Poured myself out like a libation. Okay, what about you? Uh, you just always know how to <laughs> gift wrap a Christmas gift. So perfect <laughs> and poetically. <clears throat> <sighs> yes, it's, it's I wrap it with my own skin peeled from my screaming flesh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. Um, yeah, no, you know, this year, Christmas was, um, it was one of the most, probably the most relaxing Christmases we've had in a while. And we did do a, a bit of traveling, but just not as much as we used to. We live quite a bit closer to family now. So even though we did travel, it just wasn't as intense, like you mentioned. Um, yeah, I can't imagine flying with a family of five, um, and you, I know your horror stories of flying before with kids, so I understand why you were probably freaking out before takeoff. Glad to hear that went well, though. I was, yeah. I was thinking about you the whole time. Thank you. So yeah, um, it was it was it was very relaxed. It's um, I forget if it was in a homily or something or something I read, but yeah, as adults now, we sort of we always want to recreate the Christmas experience that we had, but it we we just can't do that because we were just naive, innocent little kids and. And really, the joy now is just, like, I don't, I want for nothing, really. I mean, I have everything I could want with my technology and my phone and the watch mm. and all these things. Yeah. So I just love watching the kids be kids, you know. I mean, they're coming out in the morning. They're, I mean, literally jumping up and down for joy. Like, just, and not, not like kidding about it. Not like, <laughs> like just complete golden child age it's awesome to watch for sure um yeah do you all have any like christmas morning rituals like for us it's youngest to oldest with the gift and it's one at a time very orderly i appreciate that Uh that's how i grew up also unfortunately uh we're a little bit more chaotic because we just weren't in our own home but it was Mm -hmm. still you know it was amazing but our tradition uh is we always wake up and go to mass so before we open any gifts, I really like to take the kids to Mass on Christmas morning. We Right now, we don't go on Christmas Eve because I want to avoid all those horrible pageants. More on, more on that <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, but we go on Christmas morning. Nobody goes to Mass on Christmas morning, so it's not as insane. 
Um, but we go to Mass Christmas morning, and while they're getting in the car, what I like to do is they're all clamoring in the car, and I, like a crazy person, run to the hiding spot and get all the gifts and put them under the tree um, and then get in the car so that when we get back from Mass, all the gifts are there waiting for oh, us. Oh, I and, remember you telling me yeah. this. And then we can open up the presents. And, um, you know, this year uh, we were with a bunch of uh, Amy's family, and mm-hmm. it was amazing, but it's just a lot of people to corral, and we were on a time change. So William and Caleb woke up at 4 in the morning, and they were jumping up and down, ready ready to go. They did not get to open up presents until about noon <laughs> and by then they were like frothing at the mouth <laughs> you know so they had to wait about eight hours even when we got back from mass but they did a they did an awesome job and it was worth the wait and then we had feasting and then we actually did a really cool thing we had a cake and we sang happy birthday to jesus and you know it was it was just really great you know we'd been looking forward to it all advent and now finally here we were, we were able to say Merry Christmas, we were able to listen to Christmas carols, and I will tell you, Mark, I really did, I waited all the way till Christmas this year, and it felt great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I can see your in-laws leading a happy birthday to Jesus song. Some of the sweetest, <laughs> some of the sweetest people They're I pretty good singers, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. That's awesome. Well, yeah, so chaotic, but uh, sounds like for good. Yeah, and then we came back here, and the, the celebration continued because my mom, she made a surprise visit from Canada, and she spent a couple of days with us and was able to bring presents with her, and so they had another Christmas. Um, so it was great to extend it. And then today, which is Epiphany, um, we did the chalking of our doors. Did you chalk? Uh, did you chalk your front I door? No, I didn't chalk my door. There are still hours left in this day, um, but for those who don't know, this is centuries-old tradition of the church. It's celebrated very much in the East, um, not so much in the United States, unfortunately. But what you do is on Epiphany, you take some chalk and you mark the front door of your home. Um, you put the first two digits of the year, so two zero, and then a cross. And then the letter C, cross, M, cross, B, cross, and then the last two digits of the year, which is 19 this year. The C and B have two meanings. One is the three names of the, the three traditional names given to the Magi, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. But it also stands for a Latin phrase translated to Christ bless this home. So you're basically committing your home to Christ for that year, and you're kind of putting it right on your front door for all to see, and anyone who comes into your house, they see it, and they can ask about it, and since it's chalk, it fades over time, and you're ready to chalk it again um, the following year, so that's a nice epiphany tradition, you know. Yeah, it reminds me, it reminds me sort of of the Paschal candle, a lot of symbolism, you're marking the year. Yeah, yeah. You're not putting like nails, I guess, in your door or anything like that. But it's a lot of similar. Tuk, 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 tuk. It's not Reformation Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's Good. an exciting thing to do in Epiphany for sure. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Well, Merry Christmas, my brother. Merry Christmas. Um, we segue into, as you mentioned, sort of hybrid. Christmas, ordinary time, do I wear gold, do I wear white, do I wear green? Um, (laughs) Baptism of the Lord. And a lot to get to in the topic of baptism, as it is the um, uh, sort of the entrance into 
into the faith. So we'll get into, dive into baptism. <laughs> Plunge, immerse ourselves, be overwhelmed by, yeah. Yeah, and we don't have a guest today, so we'll just spend the next two combined segments on the topic of baptism as it is a topic that is due that, that but time. Really. Mark, I have to disagree with you, though. We do have a guest today. It's our dear listener. (laughs) Thank you for joining us in the creepy darkness of our basements as we discuss these things together. Yeah, we need a public. We need public radio voice for that. Thank you, listener, for joining us. When we come back, (laughs) good. All right. Yeah. When we come back, we'll dive right in, head first, full immersion into (laughs) the topic of baptism. Stick with us. Join the show discussion. Email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Follow the dads at facebook.com slash churchdadspodcast. Be a part of a revolution to empower the Christian family. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Welcome back to Church Dads. Full disclosure, full disclosure. (laughs) (laughs) We just left you on one recording, and we're now starting a new recording because God loved technology. Sometimes it fails you, and technology failed us the other night. Um, You know, it happens. We're just two guys with a microphone, and we really don't know what we're doing anyway. So sometimes, you know, they just, things happen. So, But this is a brand new night. That was a long break, Mark. That was a very know, long break. A very long break. For us, for us, it was it was excruciatingly long. Excruciatingly right. long. <laughs> <laughs> there was some definitely painful moments during that break, but we are here. Yeah. Oh, there was some good stuff in there, but that's okay because we're back now, ready to represent it to you, listener. So baptism is our topic tonight. And it's uh, for a good reason that we chose baptism, because we are approaching the baptism of the Lord, which will signify Mm. the end of the Christmas season, sort of the beginning of this short period of ordinary time we're about to enter. Mm -hmm. But baptism is such a topic, um, so broad, it's impossible for us to give baptism the topic justice in the time that we have. Um. So it's impossible to talk about baptism without speaking a bit about what precedes it and um, sort of where we've come from and where we're going. Hmm. Right, because, you know, here we are, you know, we're well into now the new liturgical year, and when we're approaching something like the baptism of the Lord, which is very much like a hybrid day, you know, the end of the Christmas season, the beginning of ordinary time, you know... The church is so wise in how they set up the liturgical year. You know, we begin in the darkness of Advent, you know, where we are preparing our hearts, we're preparing the way of the Lord, we're thinking about His coming, and then Christmas reminds us that He comes in this most unexpected way, you know, in the humility of a, of a stable, of a manger, of like coming as a child, a helpless infant that needs to be taken care of. And then, you know, then we, we progress to Epiphany, which is like the noonday sun. So we started in the darkness of Advent. We have this 
beautiful sunrise of Christmas, and then when we get to Epiphany, January 6th, it's like the sun is shining down and the light is so full, and we get this glimpse of the face of God in this child, just this in this very unexpected way, and the Magi come and present these these gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, which speak about Jesus's identity and his mission. They reveal who Jesus is, and they reveal what his mission is going to be. And then, immediately following Epiphany, we reach the baptism of the Lord, where now that that Epiphany becomes a theophany, and we see the the Holy Trinity expressed at last in the Scripture, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that mission really begins to take shape before our eyes. So I think it's this beautiful flowering that is leading us towards, you know, the ultimate climax of liturgical year, which is Easter itself. Yeah. It's a sublime story, the whole history of salvation, really. And everything is sort of placed perfectly like this puzzle that was supposed to be there the whole time. For instance, we three kings, da-da-da-da-da. So we just celebrated Epiphany. And um, we don't necessarily know that it was three, or three kings. specific wise <laughs> men or kings. That's right. Um, but we do know it was three gifts. Mm-hmm. And those three gifts um, foretell the life of Christ. It's sort of like a little um, um, typology within the New Testament Absolutely. of the New Testament. So you, we have the three gifts. We have the gold representing Christ's kingship. Yes. That he will be a king. And then we have the frankincense, which sounds a lot like the word incense. So this is a um, um, sacramental we use within the liturgy, incense. So this is the, the priestly ministry of Christ. And then we have myrrh, which is an unusual gift to bring, perhaps even at that time, right, Curtis? Myrrh. Yeah. I mean, myrrh was used to anoint bodies that were to be buried. It was to mask the smell of death. It's a very precious ointment, very fragment, uh, fragrant. And so the, the fact that it would be given to a, a child is strange indeed. Not something you'd bring to a, a baby shower, and yet here it is. And yeah, I think, yeah, not only does it speak to, you know, who Jesus is, but it speaks to what he's going to do. You know, like he's going to usher in this kingdom. He's going to, you know, um, repair the relationship between God and man as a great high priest. He is going to offer himself as a sacrifice. There's going to be suffering and death um, to restore, you know, all of broken humanity. And we see it there the three gifts, but we also see it in that now we have these Gentiles coming to do homage to the king of the Jews, to the son of God. And here in this little picture is the beginning of the gospel, you know, the gathering together of people from all the ends of the earth are coming back together again. And uh, the mission of reconciliation has begun. The, the kingdom of God ha- is at hand, you know, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Epiphany used to actually be more important in the church's life than Christmas Day itself. It predates Christmas Day in terms of it being celebrated in history. And um, sadly, Epiphany has become sort of like a postscript of our uh, holiday season. Um, 
people have already taken their Christmas trees down usually by the time we get to Epiphany, but that is really the climax of Christmas in a big way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. And so we move through Epiphany and we move toward the baptism of the Lord. And, you know, we have this, as Christ will eventually call him the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And he has uh, a very unique role in his own merit. And um, he is baptizing the Jews. Do I have that right? Yeah, okay. So we started the liturgical year with John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he also had his birth, you know, foretold by an angel in a miraculous way. You mentioned he's the greatest of the prophets. Um, from Jesus' mouth himself, he calls John the greatest of the prophets. And John, you can't just see him in a vacuum all by himself. It's like he's part of a tradition. He's part of a stream going all the way back through the Old Testament. And really, in order to appreciate John's baptism and what Jesus is doing when he's baptized by John, you have to go back. Because otherwise, you'll get into the trap, which I've seen people fall in, which is, oh, Jesus needs to be baptized, you know, does that mean he's repenting? Does that mean, like, he needs, you know, to have his sin forgiven? Like, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Isn't he God? Like, what's going on here? Isn't the person who baptizes naturally, like, sort of preeminent over the person who's being baptized? Like, how could John be baptizing Jesus? So, you have to, you have to kind of get your map out and look at what's happening, so you have the Jordan River, which kind of goes from north to south in the Holy Land and ends in the Dead Sea. And John the Baptist is standing there in the wilderness on the wilderness side of the Jordan. So you could say on the east side. There's like a west side and an east side. The west side is where Jerusalem and everything is. He's standing on the east side, and he's calling people from the west side to come to the Jordan and enter the water to be baptized. Well the people would have immediately recognized the significance of this because the greatest of the prophets before John, the one who was the greatest of all the prophets before John came, was Elijah. Elijah. And now Elijah is famous for being taken up in the chariots of fire, right? He didn't die like a natural death, but he was like assumed into heaven. And it says, you know, I think it's 1 Kings, he's taking his protege, Elisha, and he is slowly moving east until he arrives at the Jordan. And they're like, how are we going to cross over? And Elijah hits it with his cloak and the water splits open and they walk across the Jordan like dry land. They go to the wilderness and the chariot of fire takes Elijah away with Elisha just standing there in awe. And from that moment on, there was this, this expectancy that one day Elijah would return and herald the coming Messiah. So when suddenly this man appears in the wilderness, heralding the coming Messiah, right there next to the Jordan where Elijah disappeared, you can see that people would automatically make the connection. So already, things are getting pretty exciting. Wouldn't you say, Mark? The same exact spot, correct? Yeah. It says you can trace Elijah's um, journey to the Jordan because he stopped several times and tells Elisha, turn around, go back, don't come with me. But Elisha's like, no, I'm going to come with you. And so you can trace it. And then, you know, it says in the Gospel of John, I believe, 
that where um, where John the Baptist is baptizing, which is on the other side of the Jordan near Bethany, which is way down south right there. So it's crazy. Now, you have to even go further back to see why the Jordan is so significant, even for Elijah. Why would he go to the Jordan? Why would he cross over there and be taken up there in the wilderness? That's where God led him. Why would God lead him there? And you go further back to the book of Joshua, and you discover the most incredible thing, which is that after the Israelites had been set free from the nation of Egypt, you know, set free from the spiritual slavery that they were in, and were brought into the wilderness around Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments, entered into the covenant. Then, through their disobedience and succumbing over and over and over again to their old ways of spiritual slavery, you know, they are doomed to wander into that wilderness for 40 years until the first generation dies out and their children grow up. When their children grow up and that first generation has died out, Moses and Joshua bring them to the east side of the Jordan, right in that very spot, Mark, in the wilderness. And they gather there on that side. Moses cannot go on. Moses is not going to enter the promised land. That's another story. Joshua is going to lead them. And so there on that side of the, the Jordan, he gives his final sermon. He encourages them. He says, now you're going to go into the land. You're going to take the land back from this people who has taken it over. You're going to cleanse the land, and this is the land that God has, has promised you. But you must remain obedient to the covenant. Do not fall away like your parents did. This is your chance. And so there they are on the side of the Jordan, and Joshua commands. Um, he's given, the Lord tells him what to do. He commands the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the golden box which contained fragments of the Ten Commandments that Moses shattered when he saw the golden calf. It has the Ten Commandments in there. It has a jar of manna in there. And it has Aaron's staff that worked all the miracles in Egypt. It's all there in the box. And it, it is the presence of God, you know, among the people. The priests are to take the ark and to walk into this Jordan River, which is flooded at the time. And the moment their feet step in the water, the water parts. And it like it's like the Red Sea all over again, and they walk across dry land, but the priests and the ark have to stay standing in the middle the whole time. So the people are going past the ark, and the ark is kind of holding the water at bay. The Lord commands Joshua then to take 12 stones from the bed of the river and Come to set on, them up. Come on, it's not 12. It is 12 stones for the 12 tribes to set them up in the camp as a sign that God was faithful, and then they go into the promised land, and you can read about how they then you know, take the promised land. Now, this is so significant because what happened to those people? They disobeyed, they failed, and eventually the whole nation is split and sent into exile, and they never recover. The Ark of the Covenant is hidden by Jeremiah. The temple is empty. There is no king. You know, like everything is lost because human humanity is broken, absolutely broken. And from the very beginning, we haven't been able to, to do what we've been called to do, which is be faithful to God. Okay, so now here we are hundreds and hundreds of years later, and here comes John the Baptist. And he comes on the wilderness side of the Jordan, and he calls to all the people on the western side, all the people in the promised land, all these these people whose ancestors had crossed over the Jordan at one time, he calls them back to the wilderness side and says, I want you to come into the Jordan, 
come back onto this side and then cross over again and start fresh. It's like true repentance. We are going to start again. We are, we are going to renew our promises. We are not going to fail the way our ancestors failed. We are going to prepare the way for the Lord. So this is what the people are doing when one day, along the banks of the river, John sees a man walking. And he grabs his disciples who are with him, which is Andrew and John. And he points and says the famous words from John's gospel, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is coming into the water to be baptized by John. But now we know what that baptism is actually signifying. And so we're prepared to uh, unwrap the great mystery of what Jesus is doing. Because just like the baptism of the Lord, the feast, is both Christmas and ordinary time. The baptism that Jesus undergoes is both kind of John's baptism, but also something entirely different, something totally unique. Um, so that's, that is a very exciting part in the scripture. So what do you uh, think about that so far? I, I, I just like how you prefaced all of that with, do not look at Jesus' baptism in a vacuum, because you will that's miss... Right the point as 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 so many things are true um in scripture um it's just this sublime story and it all fits but you can't pull on the thread of the sweater on just one or it'll fall apart you have to look at the entire picture so that sets us up perfectly curtis for baptism whoo i think we need to take a breath (sighs) okay Good. All right. When we come back, we're going to get into a little bit more detail about baptism and um, the sacrament of baptism, what it is, maybe what it is not. But thank you. Oh, Curtis, that's perfect. Setting us up for baptism. Keep sticking with us. We're going to be back talking baptism. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Like what you hear? Have a question concerning family? fatherhood or faith email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com be a part of the discussion as we seek to strengthen our christian witness in the home this is the church dads podcast All right, and we're back. We're talking about Kaplish baptism. The ride. And, <laughs> yes. So, Curtis, you've, you've set up perfectly um, maybe what I would call God's um, forever plan of baptism. Right. Which has always existed from the beginning of time. Right. I mean, even from the first verses of Genesis, where it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. Like, water was there from the beginning. I think it was always being prepared for baptism, um, for sure. And so where we left off is we have the greatest of the prophets, who is not on his own, but he is simply of a lineage of many great prophets. We have one of the great prophets, John the Baptist, and he's baptizing Jesus. Not that he even wants to. He's like, no, no, I don't need to baptize you. Um, Jesus says, no, 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 let's do this thing. Um, so what is to he doing? To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all That's righteousness. Right. Well, so he... before I before I I answer that question, 
um, because it is it is mysterious, you know, what's going on here. I do. I want to just say that, yes, there it is important that we see it all in, the, in its context. Right. There's a there's a big story going on. But we also need to remember that everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was about showing us who God was. Like, it was a revelation of God himself, a revelation of what his plan was going to be, a revelation of who he was. He revealed himself in his words and his deeds. And as we progress, the revelation increases until we get to the ultimate revelation, which is Jesus Christ himself in his person. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And this is so key because that's why it's, you look back, you need to see it all because it's like a crescendo. It's a crescendo into this grand chord. I, I say that for you, Mark, as a composer. <laughs> if you just start with the chord, I mean, it's beautiful. But if you really let that build up take place and you experience the build up, the chord can be even more, to use your word, sublime. So here we have Jesus coming. And when Jesus steps up to the banks of the Jordan, that is part of a crescendo that has been happening since the dawn of creation. And here he is now. The, the one who brought the world into being is now standing on the banks of this river. This river, which was chosen of all rivers to be the most significant river in history of humanity. Here it is. And here is God himself standing on it. Okay. And he walks in and says, I want to be baptized. He walks in. He identifies himself with us. And he says to John, I am now going to enter into the waters. So I think to understand this, we have to see that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the beginning of a new humanity. And he is now going to come and do in himself what the first Adam and all the rest of for the first Adam's children could not do. He is going to succeed where they all failed. And he is going to relive in his person all of human history, only this time he's going to get it right. And so when he steps into the Jordan, he is saying, I am now going to enter in to this story and I am going to relive it. And it's very significant that after the baptism, he does not turn around and go back to Jerusalem, but he continues east into the wilderness where he is now going to relive that wilderness wandering 40 days in the wilderness, he is going to spend it struggling with Satan, only this time he is going to come out victorious, and then he's going to cross back over the Jordan, he's going to gather the 12 tribes, only this time it's going to be 12 disciples, and they are going to conquer the land anew, and this time it's not going to be driving out the, the foreign inhabitants, this time it's going to be driving out the devil and his demons from the hearts of the people he's come to save, and so he's going up and down the land doing that, he's conquering the land again. So in his person, he is reliving human history. And when he goes into the waters of baptism, he is doing it on our behalf. He is saying, I'm going to, I'm going to renew this. I'm going to make things new. And, and it's also a sign of his whole mission. Again, just like the gifts of the Magi, he's this, when he goes into the water, it's a sign of his death and suffering and obedience. And when he comes out, the sign of his resurrection and ascension. And then we have this incredible um, um, line in the Gospels. It says the heavens or heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit comes and dwell and like lands upon him. And the voice of the father from the heaven saying, 
This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. So we have this theophany, this this manifestation of who God is in this moment, and uh, this is this is so significant because what we believe as Catholics is that when we are baptized, we are united to Christ not only in His death and resurrection, but in this baptism as well. Our baptism is that baptism. We are united to that moment. And when we are baptized, we too receive the same spirit. And we too hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved child. We enter into the family and uh, we get to begin again with a new Adam. We are part of the body of Christ. We die to the old one and we are born anew into this new family. So, I mean, the baptism of the Lord is the beginning of in a way, of the age of sacramental grace. You know, it is, the, it is the moment when, you know, everything begins. That's why baptism is called the gateway to life in the Spirit. And it, Jesus is the one who showed us the way home and calls us to follow him now into the waters of baptism. Beautiful. And so we are all part of the body of Christ, and not even those... Um, of the Catholic Church, but anyone who has been baptized under the formula of um, with water and um, the formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They are baptized, and they could have even been baptized by, it doesn't matter who, it could have been a non-believer, as long as that non-believer recognizes um, the intention and does the formula properly. Now, I want to speak to that a little bit, too, because remember that Jesus started out with John's baptism, John's baptism, but it like became something so much more, you know, with the heavens opening, you know, that, I mean, that is the gospel. I mean, by his death and resurrection, he opened the heavens for us, you know, to receive the spirit. We see it all in that moment. And uh, the key, the reason this formula is so key, you know, it's not magic. You know, and what we're saying when we say in the name, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we need to think about what we're saying. We're not just doing it on behalf of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is what I think a lot of people think of when they say in the name of, like I'm doing this in the name of so-and-so, like I'm like his representative, but that's not what we mean here. That's not what the language is actually doing. Remember that the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen, is in and of itself a prayer. That doesn't make any sense if it's just on behalf of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. That doesn't make any sense. What's actually happening is, number one, we're talking about the name. Not three names, but the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you know, we know what that name is. I am that I am, the name, the great name, the tetragrammaton. I love anytime I can use that word, the tetragrammaton is the name of God. But here it is. It actually means into the name. In the name. We are in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have become partakers of the divine nature. We have entered into the divine family. We are part now of the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I live my life in the name of the Father, like as though I'm inside of it. I belong to it. And, you know, when we are baptized, you are baptized 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are no longer who you once were, but now you are a new creation. You are a son or a daughter of God in the Son because you are united to Christ. And now, here comes the biggest part of all. And I'm getting excited. I'm not ashamed. But like the biggest thing of all is that when we are united to Christ in baptism and become sons and daughters in the Son, everything that we have spoken of about Christ's mission and about Christ's identity now belongs to us as well. We too become kings. We too become priests. We too are called to offer ourselves as a sacrifice for reconciliation. We join everything that we have to him. So baptism is the beginning of a new life in which our works do have merit in which our, our sufferings do have a redemptive quality, in which we are now temples of the Holy Spirit and anointed to do his work. We are little Christs, little anointed ones, Christians, and it all takes place in the baptismal font. So, woo! And, yes, and as part, of the, as part of the baptismal rite, um, um, the priest will take some chrism oil, or the deacon, chrism oil on the head, and say, just as Jesus was anointed priest, prophet, and king, so may you also be a priest able to offer sacrifice in the presence of this community. And so we all become part of an, uh, a priestly nation, or, or what we might call a kingdom of priests. Yes. And then we are all now eligible to offer sacrifice. In our case, we're offering the sacrifice of ourselves. Um, of course, the priest is there offering um, sacrifice of the Mass. But we all become a part of this priestly nation, and yes, you, right. you mentioned it. We be, we we are part. You mentioned Second Peter. Um, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, wow, it's crazy, man. Now you mentioned the anointing that we do for infant baptism, and by the way, I love that we baptize infants because it really demonstrates in a powerful way that there's nothing we can do to earn that initial grace of baptism. There's nothing we can do to earn that. It's free. This infant did nothing. All that happened is the, the faith of the parents who bring the child to God and say, please, clothe my child again. You know, clothe them in, in Christ. And there's nothing that child can do to earn it. So let's get it. Let's do it. Come on. But right before the baptism, they actually anoint the child with uh, the oil of the catechumens or the oil of exorcism. Um, because it's like when they enter into the water, they're entering in to do combat with the evil one. You know, they're anointed for this struggle, which is going to go for their whole life. But when they're united to Christ, they're going to arise victorious. And so when they come out of the water or when baptism is finished, then they're anointed with that sacred chrism, that fragrant oil that is used for confirmation and holy orders. And like that is when they get united to Christ's mission. So before, it's about the spiritual combat and then Christ's mission. And uh, I think baptism and spiritual combat definitely go hand in hand as well. Because, of course, Jesus, he shows us that. He goes right into the wilderness to combat the devil following um, his baptism. So, yeah. Baptism. Are we out of time yet? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking forever. I'm like, this is the most exciting topic of all time. Well, it's like I told you before, uh, baptism is your wheelhouse. Ah, if anyone needs, not just baptism, if anybody needs somebody to come speak at their parish, call Curtis mm. Ketty. Call Curtis Ketty. 
Uh, Thanks, you're coming Mark. to my parish in the fall. I can't wait. I am. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. And yeah. side note, I was baptized with water from the River Jordan. Really? Yes. There was How a... Did... Um, I think there was a priest visiting who'd been traveling. So it was the whole font was not full of Jordan water. It was like oh, a like, a, like, like a vial or something. <laughs> they, well, <laughs> I don't know, but you know, it's. Uh, well, uh, you see that that's anyway. you know the Jordan River is an important is an important geographical location, but um, the tradition says that once Jesus entered into the waters, it's like all waters were purified at that moment, and all waters were made holy. Um, so that any institutes this sacrament for us uh, makes it possible. We have all these prefigurements of baptism all the way up to Christ, but at that moment things turn, and so Jesus then commands his disciples to go baptizing all nations in the name of the Father. Son, in the I'll never hear that word the same again. <laughs> You're always in. thinking into into the name, yeah. Yeah, and it, so, you know, it's no surprise that in Second Kings chapter 5, Naaman was healed of leprosy in the River Jordan. Oh. Dips himself seven times and comes up with skin like a little child. Oh, right there in the scripture, like a little child. Such a beautiful picture of baptism. Let yeah. the children come to me. Yeah, sure. we won't we won't spend too much time on infant baptism, but it's it's all over the place in Scripture. I mean, it's in Acts chapter two that Peter, or the apostles, first come out and they start preaching. And one of the first things Peter does is baptize like what a ton of people. He says, "Repent and be baptized for for the forgiveness of your sins." Right. This is for you and your family, for your whole it, family. So he's like baptizing families. The only time I've encountered people who have a problem with infant baptism, it's because they have a an insufficient or incorrect understanding of what baptism actually is and does. Because if it is a public uh, statement of faith for, in front of the world, then an infant can't do that. <laughs> but if it's like a death and rebirth that is given to us by free grace in which we receive the Holy Spirit and are anointed for a mission, then that absolutely can take place for an infant. And... Uh, you know, we look at, like, the story of the paralytic who's brought to Jesus by his four friends, lowered through the roof, you know, that story. And Jesus, the first thing he says to the paralytic is, your sins are forgiven. It's like the, the paralytic didn't confess. The paralytic didn't walk there himself. He was born there by four friends, which is why, this is the truth, we have parents and godparents stand with an infant for baptism. It comes from that story of the paralytic and the four friends. Because the four friends, on the basis of their faith, bring the paralytic, and that paralytic's sins are forgiven. Same thing happens with us. We come, on the basis of our faith as parents and godparents, bring this infant who can't help himself, who can't help herself, and their sins are forgiven, they are reborn, they are clothed anew in Christ, and they begin a life of the Spirit. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Who is it? Who is it but God that can forgive sins? And Jesus says, rise and walk. Good stuff happening here on Church Dads. Stick with us. We're going to be back for some more goodies. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back 
It is church dadaroos, daddies, daddios, <laughs> no, no. papas. I don't know. We continue on with um, a little Q&A. Uh, we had some great questions ah. here to discuss, and they don't necessarily have to do directly with baptism, but uh, they okay. were some great questions. So um, I like questions. Let's, let's hit it. All right. Question number one. My mother used to drag us to novenas when I was a kid. Whatever happened to them, and what are they? Novenas. What is this crazy Catholic <laughs> thing going on? Well, um, people are still doing novenas, so I can't really address whatever happened to them. Maybe in your area, they're not happening. But it's a nine-day um, intentional prayer time, usually saying the same prayer um, over a nine-day period, dedicating that nine-day period to God and waiting and expectation. And it comes from the book of Acts when Jesus commands the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, and they wait nine days, and on the tenth day the Holy Spirit descends. And so because of that, we have this tradition in the church of for different intentions, we will we will pray for pray them for nine days in sort of in uniting ourselves to those early disciples. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um Novena comes from novum, which is the Latin for nine. There you go. So yeah, it's nine successive days. And it, even if you should miss a day, just continue on with the next day, and it still counts. It's, you know, nine days. And, you know, try a novena, because, you know, um, just as, you know, kind of as an exercise. I, I had never prayed a novena, and my wife and I were like one day, you know, let, let's pray a novena. And uh, so we picked out a novena. Um, of St. Joseph. And so it's a very simple prayer, prayed it every night. And within that nine-day window, um, some interesting things happened. One is we found out we were pregnant with now Josephine, <laughs> who is just over one year old now. Um, the other thing was that we sold our home within um, seven days, and uh, the third thing was um, I found a brand new job in which I love, and uh, we were over we were over the moon. So you know, be careful what wow. you pray for. But anyway, try no. I would, I would I would just I would do a little little disclaimer there that it was not because he said these words over nine days. It's not like a superstitious sort of like if you say these words over nine days, it's a dedicating your heart. In, in perseverance and patience and hope in the Lord over nine days that makes a difference. It's not the prayer in and of itself, you know. So that's really important to know, too. It's not magic. We do not believe in magic. Yes. Do not bury a Joseph statue by your house. Do not bury a statue. I promise you St. Joseph would be like, guys, seriously. Seriously. And why why upside down? Why do they do I it upside know. down? I don't know, Curtis. Oh, man, I'm going to write to a bishop. Somewhere, somewhere, we're gonna, somehow. <laughs> we're going to get grandmother emails, I can already tell. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Second question. Sometimes we say the Nicene Creed after the intercessions, and sometimes we mm. don't. Isn't it a part of the Mass? What gives? Mm. And I, I just, I'll just <laughs> clarify the question of the questioner, and, and it was probably an honest mistake. Uh, typically, we would say the Nicene Creed before the intercessions. Yes, very important to do that. Mm -hmm. But it, it is possible that maybe 
uh, he or she did not hear um, the intercessions or the Nicene Creed at that point, because we don't always do it necessarily right then. It's, I it's know more that it's... accurate to describe. It's it's more accurate to describe the action we're doing, which is a profession of faith, which may have ah. different forms. But go ahead, Curtis. Right. I mean, it is you are supposed to have the profession of faith at all Sundays and solemnities, like all Sundays and holy days of obligation. The profession of faith should be there. Um, sometimes you're right. It is at the beginning. You know, it's like a renewal of baptismal vows, and there's like a sprinkling rite. Um, but um, oftentimes it'll be following the homily before the the petitions. And it's very important that the creed, the profession of faith, is said before the petitions. Um, do you know why that is, Mark? Oh, you always get me. Not a lot of people know this. You know, they just kind of go along with it. Here's a clue. All of the catechumens, those preparing for baptism, are to be dismissed following the homily and before the creed. That's your clue as to why the creed needs to be said before the petitions. We are... We are... Yeah, no, you're going to have to take it. All right, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the profession of faith is a renewal of baptismal vows. It is a renewal of the promises made in baptism, maybe by your parents when you were an infant, but then you took agency of those promises when you entered the age of reason. So when you say, I believe in one God, you're not saying, I believe that there is one God. That's what most people think they're saying, but what you're actually saying is, I believe in <laughs> one God. I believe in the person. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the church. So you're making these promises, and that baptism that you received is what makes the second part possible. You know, you received the mission of Christ. You became a priest. You became an heir to the kingdom of God. And now you can offer prayers on the behalf of the world. You can intercede for the world. So the intercessions are actually... um, Uh, you're acting out your baptismal duties, your baptismal responsibilities. So the reason catechumens, those preparing for baptism, are dismissed is not because they can't receive the Eucharist, because there's a lot of people there who can't receive the Eucharist. You know, if you have... If you are not prepared to receive the Eucharist, you shouldn't receive it, but you don't need to leave after the homily. You know, the reason that they leave is because they have not made their baptismal promises yet, so they can't renew them in the creed, and they certainly can't act out a baptismal um, responsibility yet. So that's why I always tell those who go through the process of RCIA, at the vigil, when they become baptized, they should be the most excited to get to finally say those intercessions. That they get to to act out that baptismal duty right there. That's the first thing they get to do as a baptized believer, follower of Christ, little anointed one, little Christian. They get to offer prayers to the world. It's beautiful. Should always be beautiful. said though. Do not. It was omit. not uncommon for early Christians who were being persecuted. Um, the word credo simply means I believe, and so dying Christians um, would take their own blood as they were bleeding out and uh, uh, turn down the radio if you have kids in the car. Um, they would take um, <laughs> they would take their own blood on their finger and write credo on their clothing as they were dying. It was like their last profession of faith. 
Right. So that's why it's like, it's not just like some sort of a scientific, I believe this. It's like I place all of myself, all of my trust in this person who gave himself for me. And that's beautiful. I actually never heard that, Mark, um, writing Credo in blood, but powerful. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what you, isn't that the last thing you want to say ever? You know, it's your last words. Like, a profession of faith. <clears throat> I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Curtis Curtis would just write in really big. <laughs> in. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Good. Awesome. I just was asking for in and out, but I, I ran out of <laughs> energy. That's right. Yeah. That's a restaurant in California. Uh, question number three. <laughs> I do miss in and out burger. Question number three. I don't think the practice of shaking hands at the sign of peace is necessarily hygienic. Any alternative suggestions? <laughs> I agree with you. Um, yeah. You know, that's a real, that's a real uh, cultural thing. It's a custom thing. The important thing is why we're doing it at all. Again, the question no one ever asks is why we do the sign of peace. They just love going around and shaking hands and it's like, uh, let's greet one another. But it seems like a really weird time to greet one another like over halfway through the mass. Now I'm going to turn and greet my neighbor. Um, but that is not why we we say the peace. Um, we, are, we are responding to Christ's call who said, if you are making a sacrifice and you remember that you have something against your brother then leave your sacrifice where it is, go reconcile with your brother, and then come back and offer the sacrifice. And so here we are right about to receive our Lord, to be united to him and his sacrifice. And he's saying, before you do so, I want you to go and offer the peace of Christ to those around you as a sign of the mission of reconciliation that you're a part of. And um, that's why we do it. So whether you shake someone's hands whether you offer them a bow of some kind, whether you just kind of wave, whether you just say the peace of Christ be with you. Um, it can be any of those things that you don't need to touch anyone or anything. Yeah, where you don't, <laughs> have, to, you don't have to do anything at all. Um, right, no you can just... You. That's right. We don't, the ushers are, are not there to enforce liturgical postures. <laughs> yes. You can do what Curtis does, which is sit in the back and thumb the rubrics. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> What did he yeah. just say? Did he no. skip the word in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. So the sign of peace, and I would just caution people not to go sort of too extreme on the other side of it as well, because it is what Curtis just simply described, is we're reconciling ourselves with our brother or sister and offering peace. And... Um, you know, it's not the time to check the football scores with your buddy or, hey, um, are we getting dinner later? Or it just it gets it can get a little crazy because what we forget is what is actually sitting now on the altar is now the mm. consecrated host. So Jesus it, Christ is now in the room on the altar and to get a little wild with things can um, certainly detract from that. So caution. So sorry for our technology, but we're still happy to come to you at any time. So tell your friends about us. Tell your neighbors about us. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. We're at 
churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. And then our show uh, recording is on SoundCloud or iTunes. So whatever your fancy, we are there for you. So from all of us here at Church Dads Podcast, which is basically Curtis and I. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We send you adieu. Go home and love your family.